I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Buzz Bissinger in the office for the 25th anniversary of his groundbreaking book, Friday Night Lights. Hello, Buzz. I'm so glad that you're in the office with us. Well, you know, this is the Citadel for authors, so it's kind of uh, awesome to be here. It's actually pretty cool. I'm oh. really glad that you're here. So, um, really, 25 years. That's yeah. that's amazing. Uh, it, the book still seems as fresh and relevant now as it was then. How, do, how does the passage of time on this feel to you? Well, you know, time goes quickly until you think about it. I mean, I was 34 years old when I wrote this book. It was the first book I'd ever written. And the fact that we're here talking about it 25 years later is freaky and um, amazing. You know, I'm now 60 and I didn't really know what I was doing, perhaps, although I knew I had a great story. This book has somehow become timeless and iconic, and I appreciate what you say. I think it is as relevant today as it was 25 years ago, and maybe more so because our obsession with sports is worse than ever. And we had just been talking before, I- I- exactly, and especially football, and, and now at the college and high school level, especially in the South. And right. and what is also making this uh, so fresh and relevant is the many iterations that the book has had in its TV series, <laughs> movies. Um, it's it's pretty amazing that it's still, again, the same themes are being played out in high schools across the country. Yeah, and listen, if they made a musical of Hamilton, they could make a musical of Friday Night Lights, right? Like, like I'm waiting. You right. know? Friday Night Broadway Lights. Yeah, no, the curious right. incident of the... What am I, chopped liver? Right. No, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, you know, just when you think that the... the the phrase Friday Night Lights would, would die down, then the right. movie, and then the television series. And we were talking about this, to have three distinctively really, really quality iterations. I go back to MASH, which was fantastic in all three right. iterations. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really unheard of. And once again, you know, flattering. And I think it's cool. You know, so what do you think about movie television show? You know, they're all different forms. It's why yeah. books are great. It's why movies are great. And it's why TV shows are great. And we all succeeded. So, so the 25th anniversary, this is, uh, you're going to be starting on a book tour. You've, right. you're on so many radio TV sh- shows right now this week. Um, but it was a much different feeling when the book was published 25 years ago. I mean, it was met with controversy. A lot of controversy. And, but there were even, uh, what I heard, death threats. I mean, what was that time like? What was happening? Tell us about... What happened when the book was Well, I mean, out? you know, the book was controversial. I knew it would be controversial, not because I was looking for controversy, but because I saw very, very disturbing, shocking things in terms of the excess, in terms of high school football being out of control. I mean, you know, high school football is part of our cultural heritage in America, but this had gone beyond all bounds. Yeah. I'm a journalist. You have to write about it. The city of Odessa, the town, went crazy. They were livid with me. The team I wrote about had gotten kicked out of the playoffs. It was not related to the book, but they blamed the book, and I was supposed to go down and do signings. And several people, many people, called the bookstores and says, you know, we'll kick the Friday Night Lights out of him. And I know Odessa. They're spirited. They're independent. I have a lot of respect, but, you know, that can happen. And they said, we do not want to be responsible uh, for safety, and that's why it was canceled. Uh, Why were they kicked out? Uh, they were kicked out. They were turned in by the, you know, so it was, it was a crazy frenzy. They were turned in by the other high school in town right. for starting summer practice right. early. So the town was going nuts because you have to remember, kids have waited all their lives right. to go to the playoffs, but not just kids. That's not the problem in many ways, parents. 
Yeah. They had waited all their lives. This is their shining moment. And to be deprived of that, and then there's this book, it was, it was pretty wild. I mean, it was pretty, pretty intense. So, um, as you said, you were in your mid-30s when the book was published. Uh, it was your first book, but you'd already won a Pulitzer for your investigative reporting for the Philadelphia Inquirer. How did you come across the story of this football team, the idea that there was something there worth pursuing? You know, I'm, I'm asked that a lot, and I'm asked that a lot. I, I just started teaching, and students want to know, where do you get your ideas? Sure, and you get your ideas subconsciously, and you get your ideas from the heart. When I was 13 years old, I read an article in Sports Illustrated. I love Sports Illustrated. I love sports. It was written by the great Dan Jenkins about a high school quarterback in Abilene, Texas named Jack Mildren, who was the most sought-after recruit in the country and was playing in front of 15,000 people on a, on a Friday night and was the Elvis Presley, the Marilyn Monroe, the god of the town. And I was mesmerized because he wasn't that much older than I was. Mm. And that stuck in my head. Then I was very moved and affected by the last picture show this isolated Texas town in which the only thing where they gathered together is is high school football, desolate, lonely. And that really got into my soul. And then it really kicked in in the mid-1980s. I had uh, been on a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard and had some time off from the Inquirer and drove cross-country. You take the Southern route. You mm-hmm. go through Louisiana, Texas, Alabama. Main Street was was obliterated. Small-town America was, was obliterated. Right. Uh, but then you go a few blocks out and you would see these high school stadiums a lot of them built in the wpa beautiful immaculate shrines i said these these are shrines you know it was like a eureka these are shrines these are temples to people's hopes and dreams on a friday night this is where every person in town gathers to root for their teenage kids so it's that oasis of grass in the middle of the desert yes exactly so and, and that's definitely was definitely true of odessa right? yeah absolutely right. so you have the the idea of the of the high school football and of this team in odessa how did you know there was a story there or, or what what kind of research who did you start talking well to? you know you don't i will say i had an agent at the time michael carlisle who was very helpful i spoke right. to michael and michael said you know it sounds great but you got to find the town where are you going to do this you know and I realized right away, you got to do high school football. If you're going to do it, you got to do Texas. It's so synonymous with Texas. And I knew some of the lore. And it wasn't very scientific. I spoke to some college recruiters. I actually spoke to a guy named Ernie Adams, who was Bill Belichick's right-hand man with the Patriots, and I had gone to Andover with. And they all said, go to Odessa. And I said, why? They said, just go see it as a legendary team. It's in the middle of nowhere. And I remember a guy named Bill Reese from UCLA said, go look at the stadium. You know, so I drove out there, and it's, it is, you know, a town is bad when other Texans make fun of it. Mm. It is in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's gritty. It's oil country. It's roughneck country, and you drive out, and it's flat, and it's ugly, and you go out, and you see this stadium that was built in 1985 for $5.6 million, which is a lot of money. 19,000 people. So you did 19,000 people. Artificial surface feel. The only place where they skimped was they did not build an elevator to the two-story press box. <laughs> that combined with the team that was legendary then and the winningest team in Texas state history and had a Cinderella quality, and I knew had a good chance to do well. I said, this is it. I will say, Odessa is not a quintessential small town. It's about 90,000, but it's so hermetic and so isolated that it just felt right. And as a writer, you want adventures. You right. want, you know, people say, was it weird? No, it was great because when you're writing a book, when you're writing anything, you want everything to be fresh everything to be new because your eyes never got get stale everything is my god my god 
and it was an incredibly stimulating year. It was fascinating. Um, a lot of stereotypes I had broke down. But I did also know that I was gone after a year. If, if I had been there for, you know, an indeterminate amount of time, I would have gone nuts. Right. Mm. Uh, and what were the stereotypes that you had before going there? And Hicks. what was there? Right. Hicks. Okay. These are, these are Hicks. Yeah. These are Texas Hicks. And I, and I found the kids that I wrote about to have soul, mm-hmm. to have heart, to be completely authentic, which is really rare in American life and really rare on the East Coast, frankly. Mm. I'm, I'm from New York City and had a life of extreme embarrassing privilege. They said what they felt. There, w- there was such a soul to them, such a character to them, and they were smart. They were interesting. Maybe not very well educated because the school system was pretty lousy then. And you don't find that many places. O- o- Odessa was the most authentic place I've ever been. And part of that authenticity was saying, we're going to kick the crap out of this guy because he harmed us. And he sold us a bill of goods about what kind of book he was going to write. So did you really um, sort of go in there and say, I'm going to praise you, the skies, and then turn around? Or it was, that was just sort of what they assumed? I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I never used the word praise from what I knew you got to remember, I go in open-ended. I right. do not know what's going to happen, and but, I don't. I mean, that seemed more likely I from don't. an investigative journalist standpoint. They knew standpoint. my credentials. They knew I'd want to pull a surprise. And this is a pretty media-savvy football team. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to state and winning state, you're covered all over the state. There had already been a book written, a very glowing book. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I thought it would be much more of a Hoosiers-type experience. I, I, I remember writing the proposal, and I thought the key, you don't know, is that there was this black running back, Booby Miles, who would lead the team to the promised land, which might be interesting because the black population was very, very small. But, you know, stuff unfolded that was disturbing, shocking. Racism, when I got into the school, the academic priorities were really screwed up. That's not to say there were bright kids, but... There was really no motivation. There was very little teaching. Those who taught were completely discouraged because of football. Mm. And football had devoured that town. And, you know, when, when people, you have your notebook open and people look at you and they use the N-word and they're not using the N-word nicely. There's no way to use it nicely. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You, you, see, you say, you I'm sorry. What do you read? The, read them the Miranda warnings. And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like I was hiding behind bushes and it was prevalent. And, you know, you report. They didn't de- desegregate the schools until 1982 by court order. They didn't want to. Well, you, you, you can't ignore that. Right. And you, you gained what seemed like unfettered access to the players, the coaches, the parents. How, how did you gain their trust while keeping that kind of journalistic distance? Well, you know, I, I gained access before the season. I went down and visited the coach and visited the, the athletic director, who was a former coach, and uh, visited certain members of the school board. So I had the access. You know, you're a journalist. You don't play your hand. You know, you don't because mm-hmm. you shouldn't. So when someone is saying something that is shocking or you discover something shocking, I'm not going to play my hand because the purpose of the access is to get people to act themselves. Right. So if I say, well, you know, and, and some people you talk about desegregation, some people you talk about the impact of racism, but no, I didn't, I didn't play my hand and, and journalists do that. That book has been dissected for, what, 25 years. Yeah. They've, you know, they may, they may disagree with the emphasis and the emphasis was exactly correct. There has not been a single fact I know of that's incorrect, except I did spell the name of a minor character wrong. It was Stony <laughs> with an E and I forgot the E dissected, looked at. Um, I've been back to Odessa not for an official book tour. 
uh, they kind of like me now. Mm. The worst thing is they say, there was a book? <laughs> what book? You know, they say, well, I started no. it. And the weird thing is, the interesting thing is, I put that town on the map. Yeah. It is the home of the Friday Night Lights. Now, granted, the, the movie was a softer version and the TV show was, but, you know, so they should be thanking. I'm not going down there to seek, <laughs> I'm not going down there to, to seek forgiveness. Right. This is not the forgiveness tour. I can argue that they should forgive me for what they put me through. They should, um, they should seek forgiveness or, you know, from Booby Miles for what they put him through. They should be embarrassed by the monster they created, just as they just as they have made real, real change. But this is not a goodwill tour. I'm not going to back down. Well, you know, let's talk about uh, Booby Miles, who you right. wrote about uh, in in the follow-up to that after Friday Night Lights. Uh, the subtitle, I just want to read, When the Games Ended, the Real Life Began, An Unlikely Love Story. Talk to us about Booby Miles. Uh, he was right. the central character in Friday Night Lights and was right. one of the people who you stayed in touch. I, I don't know. Yes. Did you stay in touch yes. or did you re-get, regain we, touch? We, we, always, we always did stay in touch. It accentuated more after his beautiful uncle. What a, what a beautiful man. Died in 1988. Really the kindest, most decent man I think I've ever met. And by the way, in the 25th anniversary edition, there's a very extensive new afterward that right. um, gets everyone up to date on the players. That Great. was important to me in terms of completing the circle and also important to me emotionally. So tell us about Booby Miles first. Well, you know, Booby, Booby's the, I, I don't like to use the term because it sounds dismissive and I love Booby and Booby is a hell of a lot more self-aware than people ever thought. Booby was and is the poster boy for everything that's wrong about sports in America. Booby was considered and looked at as a, uh, I've said it before, but I don't know what other term, a football animal. Mm-hmm. A human being who had no worth beyond playing football. And that was said to me. I remember asking him, assistant coach, a really good guy, an enlightened guy. I said, what would Booby be with football? And he said, you know, a big, dumb, old N-word. A coach. But that's how they thought about him. Mm-hmm. He got no education. He had a tutor, and he pretty much got all the answers to tests. He was getting A's. He got, he got paid to play by a booster. Junior year, go to his locker room. Every Monday, there'd be an unmarked white envelope with as many yards, uh, dollars for as many yards as he had gained. Well, you know, he's, he's broke. He's poor. He gained 305 yards one night. That's 305 bucks. That's a lot to a kid. Well, you're not going to concentrate on academics. Right. You're not, you're not being encouraged. They, they put him in special ed classes, and he, he had special ed needs. But, you know, he was writing at a third grade level. And I've seen bo- boobies written me letters that are eloquent and smart. They had no faith in him. But he was the big ticket until what happened so many times, he got hurt. Right before a senior season in a meaningless preseason scrimmage, he got hurt on a meaningless play. It wasn't even a hard hit. He blew out his knee. His season was done. Plus, what always happens is there are too many t- They found someone better. Mm. They found someone better off the bench and didn't care. They didn't care about him anymore. His life was over. Life is over for a lot of these kids, particularly inner city kids and minority kids, because that's how we value them. Mm-hmm. Your only worth is as a basketball player, as a football player, and if you don't make it, so what? You know, we don't care anymore. So I knew that Booby's life was going to be very, very hard. He had a high level of frustration. He went to junior college to play football. It didn't work because he had lost that second millisecond of speed. He was a fantastic... He, he, Watching him run, and I always saw it on tape, watching him run with such joyful abandon, his physique, he was sort of like a LeBron James. He was, he was a man among boys. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful to watch. And all that was taken from him, and his life went downward and downward. And you know, I'll just say it, when I interviewed him in April, he's in prison. 
He's serving 10 years for aggravated assault. He was up to 420 pounds. He's now back to about 360. His head is good. There's a uh, great self-awareness. There's a sadness to him. He's much too hard on himself, but it was hard. And I kept up with Booby a long time, and we have a very complicated, intertwined relationship, and uh, I've given him help financially. We split the proceeds of After Friday Night Lights, which was an e-book about him, because I think that was only fair. It didn't really help. It's hard when you're given a lump sum of money, and, you know, I'm like that. I mean, I spend a ton of money on weather. You know, you get a lump sum and say, whoa, you know, every author does that. I heard about an author who got a lot of, uh, uh, I won't mention the name. He got a lot of money. He had a huge book party, and he realized he had no money left. Um, I love Booby. Seeing him was was hard. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, and I love him, and he loves me. But he's the poster boy for what to me is the essence of the ultimate tragedy of, of, of sports in America and it happens all the time. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Buzz Bissinger, author of Friday Night Lights, about the book's 25th anniversary. Um, so this book really shifted your career. I mean, yes. it, it uh, it's very indelibly associated with your name. Did you expect that to happen? All I know is is that I had great training of the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was it was the heyday of newspapers. There was no newspaper like it with a great Gene Roberts. I had written a lot of what we call takeouts, very long stories where I began to learn about narrative and, and developing plot and characters. And I also realized that has nothing to do with writing a book because it's very, very different. I knew I had a great story. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a story unlike any other. I remember a, a wonderful editor I had at Vanity Fair, George Hodgman, saying, the key is, is to burrow into a subculture, to get underneath the skin, underneath the surface, and tell people about a world, even if they thought they knew something about it, they really don't. And I did that, and I knew that. As I said, to be talking here 25 years later, to have written something that has become iconic, to have invented a, a, a title, although actually Jane Isay came up with it, to, to invent a title that is used everywhere. I should have should have uh, trademarked it. Yeah. I could have used some advice <laughs> right. from you guys, actually, because then I'd be doing the radio interviews and I'd be doing it from some palace in Las Vegas. Uh, no. But I knew it was a great story. And the, yeah, the X factor, the, the fear was, would this translate outside of Texas? Hmm. They thought they could sell 20,000 copies in Texas. They sold a lot more. And then it swung out of Texas. And then other bookstores picked it up. What I didn't realize, and I think it's the, a primary reason for the success of the book, success of the book, and why it's still successful, is how many people identified with the book. Not the bad stuff. That was my high school. I remembered kids like that. I was a kid like that. And what I remember most of all is the beauty and the power and the darkness of the Friday Night Lights. I mean, I've had hundreds of people say, hey, that was my school. Doesn't matter if it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Wisconsin, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota. That was my high school. And that I did not really anticipate. Hmm. And so after, at what point did you leave the Inquirer? It was a, not, then, right then. I went on leave and never came back. I remember right. Gene, the great Gene Roberts saying, so what? Where are you going? 
Where's Odessa? What are you doing? That's ridiculous. No one's ever going to talk to you. You know, you're a Jew, little Jew from New York. They're not going to talk to you. And what are they going to say? They're a bunch of hicks. And he, he loved me and discouraged me. And I said, you know, it's in the union rules. You've got to give me leave. Hmm. And I went out there with, I had a book contract. It was not nearly what I was making. Uh, and I went out there with my lovely twin boys who were then five and my then fiance. And after that, the book came out, and then you started, uh, then you were a contributing editor for, I right. mean, for I guess it was Vanity Fair. Yes, yes. Uh, but you'd also wrote for GQ, later Deadspin, right. and other right. places. So. I didn't quite write for Deadspin. Deadspin excoriated me because I was on the Bob Costas show and criticized the internet and bloggers, and I'm still right. getting emails saying, you're a fool and we hate you. <laughs> but <laughs> they were tough, Deadspin. Right. Let me just tell you, they were tough. I sort of liked them now, yeah, but yeah. boy, were they tough. Oh, my God. Wow. And, um, you know, just this year you wrote for Vanity Fair. You got this big celebrity scoop of Caitlyn Jenner's transition. How did you land that? Well, it, it sort of traces back to much of what has happened in my life, which is great. But I had problems with it, for, you know, Friday Night Lights, because uh, there was a sports connection. I'd uh, written, I'd written I a, a, a comic book about sports. Obviously, Caitlyn Jenner had been a great um, athlete. As it turned out, there were other personal connections Um as well, and then you know, Graydon Carter, when he looked around, felt I would be the right person for it because of the sports connection, and because I'm really an old style, you mm-hmm. know, reporter. I, I believe in reporting things out, and whether I succeed or not, I wanted to give that story an extra dimension. So that's why you talk to the kids. That's why you talk, um, you know, to the wives to to try to burrow underneath. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. What what was um what was that experience like? Did you end up Bizarre. working the sports angle or did it just were you sort of diving into this Kardashian no, because celebrity it, well, world? Well, we, it wasn't much Kardashian, it wasn't much sports because I mean what was interesting about Caitlyn is that as Bruce completely minimized the accomplishment. Mm. I remember going into into and I say his not dismissively. I it's always hard, but when he was an Olympian, mm-hmm or she was an Olympian, he had no memorabilia, nothing. I actually helped him move because he's very cheap and he wouldn't hire a mover. So he's got this, <laughs> this little guy helping him move. I said, come on, you know, this is ridiculous. He said, shut up and move. He's got a very good personality. He's very open. And I remember taking some vases and, and, and books off a bookshelf. And there, you know, on the, on the corner of the bookshelf were the, the iconic Wheaties box. I, I remember that. that and was... I said, do you know that's there? He said, oh yeah, I, th- I think it was there. And I said, where, where's the great American flag you carried when you went? I, right. don't, I don't know where it is. I mean, he completely minimized it. We had an interesting connection in terms of obviously he was going through a profound transition, but I make no bones about it. You know, I like to cross-dress. I've had a fascination with, with women's clothing and, and, and leather, and this is a part of my life. And so there was you know, that bond. I think mm. most of the time we wanted to talk about shoes. Uh, <laughs> but there was that bond in terms of, wow, he is going through something pro- so profound. And I've gone through something profound in my life. It's about difference. And I, he's had an interesting impact on me. So it she, was. I'm sorry, she. I shouldn't say that. So it was really two things uh, that that enabled you to to get access to right. Caitlin uh, both the sports angle but I think more immediately the the piece you did for GQ yes. of being a shopaholic and as yeah. you mentioned before spending yeah half over half a million well, on clothes. I, I will say because I interviewed her Chris Jenner was much more interested in that piece than Caitlin Jenner was because mm. you know they're they're they've yeah. they've coined the term but yes I mean you know they, they, they it's interesting I don't think they'd read the piece um, 
really? when I showed up, but then they read the piece and they right. said, wow, this is, you know, this, this, he knows something. Right. He knows a little something about what Caitlin has been going through, you know, all her life about, you know, and it's different because gender is not, you know, transgenders, the gender is not tied to sexuality. For right. me, you know, I say it, women's clothing has been a sexual turn on. I think the phrase is autogenophilia. So there was a big difference. But he, at the very least, this guy knows about difference. Mm-hmm. This guy right. knows about how profound difference is and how difficult it is. It's not easy in this country. In Europe, it's very, very different. You know, I, these are actually, you know, I'll wear men's shoes with a four-inch heel. And, you know, the looks I get are endless. Mm-hmm. Endless. Like, what, you know, and I've worn, you know, wear a lot of women's clothing. And I've worn women's boots and mostly, you know, women's pants. And in Europe, not a big deal. It would be unisex. Right. But here in this country, it's it's hard. But, you know, Caitlin has been profound for me because more and more I say, screw it. Yeah. I, I, I want to be myself. You know, I don't wear a dress, frankly, because I don't look very good. <laughs> um, I've tried it, and I don't look good. Right. My, my wife and I have taught. It's no secret to my wife. It's no secret to my kids because, you know, it's all the stereotype. Yeah. What, what does it mean to be a man? What right. does it mean because of what you wear? Right. What does it mean to be a woman? What what does that really mean? I mean, I think those those are just terms that have become increasingly um, arbitrary. But you know, and and the worst are the white heterosexual males because they're tight. I, I think I think they're all homoerotic in their own way. They're scared to death of anything out of the norm. The comments I get in my clothes: women love what I wear, right. and minorities love what they wear because they have a great sense of flash and and style. But these arbitrary labels that we give this is why i talk about it because i think it's wrong i hate going into clothing stores women's section men's section what who the hell cares women may like clothing that is defined as men and may men may like clothing defined as as women do you watch game of thrones Look at those yeah, outfits. Those right. outfits are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, what the hell happened? What who, the hell who happened? Who wouldn't want to wear right. those dresses? I know, right? but what yeah. you know, the, the, the men look <laughs> so hot. I mean, what the hell happened? The transformation is really interesting because these, these are these are, I think, almost economic terms and yeah. social terms, religious terms. And you know, Caitlin has done so much to to bring the notion of sex change, transgender men and women, into the conversation. It's talked about. It's thought about. And I think that's great. And um, she has emboldened me to talk about it because I don't like the barriers because I think they're completely artificial. And I, you know, I think there is more of a connection between this and than and football than some people might draw because so much of sports culture is about keeping those walls up and keeping right. those rules in place that men men do this thing and men take right. the tough hit and they don't cry. Yeah, they 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 take the tough hit and and don't cry. And they're men. I mean, what Caitlyn Jenner had to, had to put up with all, all her life was, you know, I'm supposed to be a he-man. Right. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the greatest athlete in the world. I saved the American team because I remember those Olympics. We right. got clocked. And that was the day of the Cold War where right. the Olympics really counted. Yeah, it really mattered. Um, as Bruce saved the Olympics. But when you, you hear her talk about giving speeches, talking about the Olympics and winning and the dedication and, and sitting there and saying, I am such a fraud. Mm. I am not who I want to be because everyone expects to me be mom and apple pie. And he was gorgeous. Mm. He, you know, we, yeah. I I hated him because that guy <laughs> was so any woman. He, I mean, geez, yeah. he's perfect looking, and he's a great athlete. Um, but you know, he defined the the difficulty in this country of going against the stereotype of the athlete. 
You know, right. I've spent a lot of time in, in clubhouses, and I think clubhouses are, are incredibly homoerotic, which I think is really cool. But they're terrified of any kind of expression of it, which is why it's so hard to be openly gay. And, you know, who cares? You know, who cares? So then there's the sense, well, if you're gay, you're not a, you can't be a, a good athlete, which is ridiculous, right. which is absolutely, but there's so many boundaries and stereotypes in this, in this country. And then you hear, you know, people talk and I was on Morning Joe yesterday and the previous guest was Mike Huckabee, who's mm-hmm. offensive yeah. and ridiculous and talks about the Republic as if it's his Republic. Well, it's not my Republic. And, you know, trying to get FaceTime out of, out of this endless, endless um, invo- invocation of, of God and this ridiculousness and the Supreme Court does not define the law. It's abhorrent. But beyond abhorrent, it, it continues to define artificial stereotypes, which can be very different. Because imagine Caitlyn Jenner not having done this. Mm. And I imagine in my own life. I mean, you go crazy. You go crazy. I mean, it's a part of you. And, and I need some outlet. And obviously, in her case, much more intense. She needed, it wasn't desire. She needed to do this, but had to wait 65 years to feel it was safe. Yeah. And you've, you, you've described yourself just, just a while ago as this little Jew from New York. Uh, who are they going back to Odessa talking? But with it, you obviously, like, in gaining access to them, you obviously have brought a certain sense of perception or a certain sense that what you see isn't what you get. Correct. I mean, is that how exactly you is right. that how you get? We both realized that yeah. they had they had a you know I showed up I think the first time I was in it. It's like 105 degrees. I'm in a, in a tweed jacket with with elbow <laughs> right. patches and loafers. As well, the they, reporter, they, they <laughs> looked at me reporter. and said, "Where the hell has this guy come from?" Mm-hmm. And he's an idiot. And they have East Coast stereotypes, mm-hmm. and I had West Texas stereotypes. But I like people, and I, I like talking to people because I find in, inevitably that every stereotype I've had is wrong, and they found that their stereotypes are wrong. We we bonded. They were curious about me. They were interested about me. I was interested about them. And then, you know, in terms of writing, the the great access can be a double-edged sword because I learned in this case, you're going to hurt people that you like often, or maybe you get too embedded with, with your subjects and don't write what you have to write. But the reason for the access you know, is to be there. Mm-hmm. The most important thing I did was to be at every practice, not be, to write about it. I mean, practices are boring after the yeah. first practice, but they would have early morning practice, 7 a.m., and I realized they were watching to see if I was there. Right. And because I was there, they said, oh, you know what? This guy's committed. This guy's going to do it. And that's the reason for, for access. The other reason for access and the other reason I lived there for a year is because when I wrote, I could write with authority. I, I knew that town. I lived in that town. My kids went to school in that town. And you need to write with confidence. You need to write for, with authority to be honest. You know, you can pipe it. You can wing it. A lot of writers do because they want to make money or it's, or it's thinly disguised screenplays or treatments for movies. But in my case, I was grounded and, and trained and taught as, a, as an old-style shoe-leather reporter. That's what, what it, it was about. It wasn't about point of view. It wasn't about edge. It wasn't about having lunch with a celebrity and defining and summing up their lives in some you know, re- bow, which is done all the time today. 
We've been talking with Buzz Bissinger. You can find his book, Friday Night Lights, in stores right now. And finally, you'll be able to see him on tour as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, this is great. I really, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about rising stars of the publishing industry. So stay tuned.